Hello, hello everybody. Welcome, welcome back. So, I just came back, well, about three days ago, um, from a two-week jhana meditation retreat. And uh, it was really cool, very interesting, very, very worthwhile. And uh, I wanted to talk about the experience um, and also talk about Rob Rubia, uh, because I essentially followed Rob Rubia's jhana retreat, uh, you know, lectures and uh, talks as I went through the retreat. Uh, and also to, to try to uh, tie all of these, you know, new experiences, new insights with uh, QRI paradigms, such as, uh, you know, th th things such as neural annealing, um, or <laughs> the hyperbolic geometry of DMT experiences. And more recently, essentially, the brain as a nonlinear optical computer, which I think is an extremely promising, extremely promising way of seeing, seeing the nervous system. Um, but before I get into it, very quickly, the quality of the day is hyperdimensional objects, hyperdimensional objects. So essentially, uh, right before I left the retreat, to the retreat, uh, which is actually an at-home retreat, um, you know, just with discipline, making sure it happened. I left a, a, a kind of cryptic tweet saying that um, it is actually possible to experience seven-dimensional objects on DMT. And I also said that, okay, like my long-term credibility strategy is to say things that sound completely insane and completely absurd, but that are actually true. <laughs> so that, yeah, in the long term, people realize like, hey, I, I'm actually not bullshitting people. I'm actually speaking to the best of my understanding. And uh, so I want to mention a couple things about it. You know, it was picked up by, uh, you know, bloggers and, uh, you know, okay, I wish I was there to kind of defend the claim. I will actually make a, a you know, full length, detailed presentation on the QRI channel, the main QRI channel, which uh, I hope you subscribe to as well, not only my, you know, my channel here, um, where I'm going to explain all the ways in which I know it is possible to experience not only hyperdimensional objects, because, you know, in a, in a, you know, weak sense, you could say, you know, looking at a projection of a hypercube on 3D is kind of looking at a 4D object. I don't care that much about that. What is much more, much more profound is to actually inhabit and embody and instantiate higher dimensional spaces um, where higher dimensional objects can be embedded. And you can you know, project them and rotate them and see different properties of it, uh, <laughs> such as getting a completely intuitive grasp of why is it the case that a three-dimensional knot, let's say the trefoiled knot, um, is actually not knotted in four dimensions. Uh, it's, you know, a projective illusion, actually. You, you look at it from a different angle on four dimensions, you realize, actually, <laughs> it's not a knot. It's not a knot. So that kind of knot is actually, you know, a property of the three-dimensional world. Um, so, and, uh, you know, this is not like a trivial thing. So first of all, First of all, it is not going to be the case that 
if a random mathematician says like, oh, I want to see if I can experience seven-dimensional, you know, spaces or hyperbolic geometry, you know, three-dimensional hyperbolic geometry or something like that on DMT, and they have like one DMT trip, and most likely they don't know what dose they took, it's not actually very likely that we'll, they will experience this. Um, similar, similar to, um, if you talk about the sixth jhana, you know, the... <laughs> the realm of infinite consciousness, right? And like you, you try to give an intuitive understanding of it and then somebody meditates for half an hour and says, oh yeah, I kind of get what you mean. And then, you know, goes on to say like, oh yeah, I've experienced the sixth jhana, which is like, like almost certainly not, right? Like you, if you experience the sixth jhana, it's unbelievably profound and transformative. And like, it's, it's, it's not like, like, oh yeah, I just had the sixth jhana, you know, the other day after meditating half an hour, it doesn't, that's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. It, it's much more like <laughs> after a lot, you know, long, intensive, lifelong practice, extremely rarefied, rarefied and um, extremely subtle and sophisticated states of consciousness. It requires a lot of dedication and a lot of observation and very, very careful phenomenology to, to, to get there and commitment, you know, intense desire to experience it. Um, so, you know, my claim is actually it is possible to experience a seven-dimensional space on DMT. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not trivial. But let me explain, you know, just as a hint of what I'm going to be talking a lot more about, a much more detailed presentation. There are three ways that I know where higher dimensions can actually, um, how higher dimensions can manifest. So first of all, what I call hyperstereoscopy. So it turns out not everybody has a stereoscopic vision. There is a percentage of the population that even though they have two functioning eyes, when they look at the world, phenomenologically, it's more or less flat. It's similar to like, if you just look at the world with one eye, you know, like obviously you can infer depth information uh, in terms of like blurriness, uh, you know, if you assume that something is a cube, actually the angle will change as a function of how far it is from you. Just that's a feature of <laughs> projective geometry. Um, you can infer distances and also, you know, occlusions, obviously. But phenomenologically speaking, it's not rendered with actual depth as an additional dimension, what's called a 2.5 dimensional space. With both eyes, if you have stereoscopic phenomenology, there is this depth quality. And there are some fascinating subjective reports of, for example, a lady who all her life had no stereoscopy, but had two functioning eyes. And then one day in the opera at random, <laughs> it got turned on. And then she was like, oh my God, oh my God, the world has depth. And it was a profound change. It, you know, the thing is, if you most people have stereoscopy, but they're used to it. They don't think, they don't realize there's something profound. I mean, almost, you know, literally, there's profundity into your experience. And uh, um, actually, you know, depth of experience, I think it's very, you know, it's not just metaphorical. You know, depth of experience um, gives you also emotional depth um, for fascinating reasons having to do with um, harmony and resonance. Um, so when that get turns on, you know, stereoscopy gets turns on, it's profound. Okay. And so how, how is this happening? You know, like 
the actual dimensionality of your experience has these additional z-axes. Um, so here is the first approximation of what is going on, right? So you have like two two-dimensional fields, the data stream, you know, from both of your eyes. Um, if you have like one dot in either, you know, in both of those places, you actually have four degrees of freedom, right? It's like you will need um, a vector of four dimensions to specify like, well, okay, there's one dot here and there's one dot here, you know, what are the X and Y coordinates? If, you know, that dot is actually coming from the same shared space, which is a three-dimensional space, something very interesting is going to happen, which is that the y-axis is going to be redundant. So you actually are not getting additional information, you know, with the y-axis. But the fact that this is redundant is helpful for actually identifying which point in which side, in which part of the, what each of the fields corresponds to each other. So that allows you to align them and wherever you're focusing on, you can essentially align them together. And, uh, you know, it actually depends on how much you're crossing your eyes. <clears throat> you will experience it as further or closer away from you. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, but, but there's something actually much deeper going on here in that this is not just kind of like a mathematical equivalence of like, well, you're sacrificing in some sense, a degree of freedom <laughs> for the sake of gaining a virtual dimension, you're actually experiencing that depth. It's, it's so much deeper than just, well, it's mathematically equivalent to it. So what is going on? Um, to really understand this, you will have to bring to mind uh, <clears throat> uh, either the article or the video on nonlinear wave computing, also um, digital sentience, uh, the article on digital sentience in TRI, where, I mean, essentially, your world simulation is being constructed with nonlinear waves uh, bouncing off each other. So when you only have one eye, essentially the distances between the points are going to be computed by how long it takes for a particular wave to travel from one point to another. Um, when you actually integrate, you know, the two video streams, as it were, um, waves will start to propagate also across the z-axis. You know, and, you know, there's like kind of a little equation there, which is like, you know, how much is going to travel um, there actually will correspond to what is the relative displacement in the x-axis between the points in both fields. So essentially the depth will be a function of how far those two points are relative to each other in the x-axis. So, um essentially then waves actually start to propagate as spheres. And so you have essentially a huge collection of points that are now related with a distance function that works according to essentially something that would be equivalent to, you know, the uh, generalization of the Pythagorean relationship. Essentially, you know, the distance is going to be not only the square root of, you know, x squared plus y squared, it's going to be the square root of x squared plus y squared plus f of z, or f of the displacement, essentially, uh, in, in the z-axis. Um, and essentially, that is the speed at which this wave is propagating. Now, there's a, an interesting additional point here, which is that your world simulation is actually not Euclidean. 
is this weird projective space. It looks like a diorama. Um, I suspect that the way in which this depth is actually implemented involves changes in the index of refraction, in essentially the speed at which these waves are propagating. And so the things that are further away are things where the waves propagates more slowly. So, you know, if you're simulating a train moving <laughs> very close to you versus moving far away, uh, essentially, in both cases, um, phenomenologically, you could realize they're moving at the same speed, even though obviously they're moving at different speeds in terms of, you know, <laughs> changes in your visual field. Um, but that is because you actually have an understanding of the equivalence of the relative speed of wave motion, depending on where they are in the z-axis. So something that can happen on, let's say, DMT, is that you already start with this <laughs> stereoscopic depth perception of your world simulation. And then uh, there's a tracer effect. Essentially, you get this like stacking of your world simulation on top of the, your world simulation, you know, a couple milliseconds ago, on top of the one a few milliseconds ago and so on. And so you move your hand around and, you know, you get like this like stacking of previous moments of experience. So sometimes, uh, there's this phenomena I call point of view fragmentation, where the different regions on these like stacking, uh, which we call the pseudo time arrow, <laughs> uh, it's already stacked, you know, in normal everyday life, except that it becomes much longer on DMT. Um, essentially, they can uh, defragment and dissociate in such a way that rather than being understood as different events in time, they become interpreted as different events in space. Um, these can sometimes manifest as feeling like you're seeing parallel dimensions simultaneously in an overlapping kind of way. But essentially, there is kind of an energy function in your, in your essentially in your brain, but essentially the world simulation works that way, where stitching together and making consistent the various inputs, the channels that are feeding into your experience minimizes energy. So just as like we stitch together the information from both eyes, likewise, in that state, you can stitch together um, the different components of your pseudo time arrow as if they were input streams from different, different universes, as it were. And in some cases, they can be understood as different input streams from essentially the same space, but looked at it from a slightly tilted additional fourth dimension. And so now you have this 2.5D world sheet, as we call it, um, being seen through yet another angle that is not contained within this three-dimensional space. And when you stitch that together, then you get something like 3.5D, but it's just a tiny sliver of a cross-section of a 3.5D internal representation. So that would be what I call hyperstereoscopy. And it's like one of the ways in which you can actually experience higher dimensional spaces where waves are actually propagating as if they were in 4D. Very, very, very strange and, and fascinating. But I'm, you know, this is, I, I would claim, <laughs> again, my long-term legitimacy strategy. These are, this is a feature of, of the universe in the sense of that you can <laughs> modulate how the brain works uh, to instantiate these experiences, even though they are completely unbelievable. Um, <laughs> unless you've had them, you know, unless you've had them. But there's like other two ways in which uh, higher dimensions can manifest. Another one is, um, uh, which also happens on meditation. I experienced this um, 
uh, a good number of times in the retreat, um, where essentially your whole simulation, world simulation, gets oscillated along a new dimension. Uh, this would be, it's not really a fully expansive additional dimension because um, it's kind of like a compactified dimension in, in that like, um, <laughs> sorry, very buzzwordy, like in, in string theory, you can have like tiny dimensions that are rolled up. Um, something like this, like if the whole world simulation is oscillating at a particular frequency along an additional dimension or functionally it works as another dimension, um, it, it, it doesn't add that much depth, but it does contain, you know, you may have, let's say like kind of like five snapshots of experience kind of like in a time loop along another dimension. Um, which absolutely has hedonic tone effects. Um, which they could be really wonderful, actually. They're very compatible with very, very loving states of consciousness. Um, at least that's how I've experienced them. Um, but really, really, the absolutely most insane hyperdimensional spaces that exist is when you experience things such as not only wallpaper symmetry groups, but actual space groups, which are kind of these crystallographic tessellations of space um, of different kinds simultaneously in your world simulation where they get composed with each other. And it's kind of like a, you know, a product relationship where each point or each, actually each symmetry within each of these uh, space groups um, gets multiplied by each symmetry on the other one. And it's very strange because like, okay, these are two, you know, three-dimensional, three-dimensional things um, that are implemented with essentially resonant waves. And they interlock in such a way that they share some of those symmetries, but then the new configuration, the new kind of like symmetry group that emerges out of this union contains additional dimensions. And, you know, it's extremely difficult to, to explain um, but it's something to play with, you know, if you're a mathematician and you can recognize, okay, this is a space group, I would say absolutely try to compose them. You know, if you see two space groups that are different, <laughs> don't just go with one. Try to hold both of them in your uh, attention simultaneously and try to merge them into some kind of hyperspace that contains both of them. And from that is where you can get something as high as kind of a seven dimensional space. Now, it's not going to be very large. Um, you know, <laughs> it will have a lot of redundancy and repetition. But in terms of, you know, how waves travel and um, all the degrees of freedom within that space, yes, I, I think it can go as high as seven dimensions. All right. Well, that took a little bit longer than I expected, but... Um, it's very exciting. I'll, I'll uh, again, like talk much more about that. So uh, on to the meditation retreat. Um, <laughs> um, so just a little bit of personal background, you know, like I decided to do this because I haven't before. I hadn't experienced jhanas before. I had experienced lots of interesting things uh, in meditation, especially in the realm of loving kindness, um, equanimity and uh no self uh <laughs> very trippy you know meditation driven but like ex experiences yeah, in buddhism they would call them insight at least uh, the no self component um which is like realizing that there's like no essence of you 
and in some sense you're just kind of a a pocket of the universe uh, you don't have a fundamental you know enduring flavor uh yeah you're kind of like a part of the universe uh, impersonating somebody. It's a very strange uh, perspective, but probably closer to the truth <laughs> than our everyday perception. And, you know, just to give you a sense, I would consider myself a advanced beginner. And so I'm not, I'm not an advanced meditator by any, you know, I would consider an advanced meditator as somebody who spent, you know, 10,000 hours or something like that. Let's say like an intermediate advanced, you know, would be, I don't know, more than 2,000 hours or something. I, I made the tally of like how much I've actually meditated and I've estimated between 500 hours and a thousand hours. And I think like, you know, some, some of you will probably be surprised in the like, oh, that's more than I thought. And probably a lot of you or a good percentage of you will maybe be surprised, like it's less than you thought. Uh, because I, you know, I have friends who've meditated way more than that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, and they can, many, many of, a good number of people I know can access the Janus. Um, and I've, I've been very curious, very, very curious about the Janus. Just never had, you know, the determination and discipline to make it happen. And, you know, to give you also kind of like a rough general sense, um, something in the space of like 200 hours of loving kindness meditation, mostly in essentially one hour sessions every day during periods in my life. Um, something in the space of like a hundred now a hundred hours of things that would roughly be cataloged as uh equanimity practice and then like a long tail of other things i mean like a long tail you know i don't know 50 hours of just you know just breath meditation with like no intention other than that just just breathing meditation just like focusing let's say on the sensation on the tip of the lip sort of thing um you know 20 hours of transcendental meditation, you know, mantra-based meditation, 10 hours of uh, imaginal practice, soul-making practice. So, uh, and a long tail of other things. That would be kind of like my formal meditation um, tally. But then there's also <laughs> what Anders from uh, Anders and Maggie, you know, QRI in Sweden, calls kind of like garden variety meditation, which is like meditation that you're probably doing you're not doing it formally and probably not very intensely. You're not gathering a lot of energy. You know, you're not accessing intensely energetic states of consciousness. Uh, but you are doing something that would probably be qualified as some kind of meditation. And I would say, yeah, quite a bit during my life, especially in the domain of something adjacent to insight. Uh, to give you an example, like as a kid, I used to, you know, <laughs> ask myself over and over and over and over again for, for hours. And like, it would be a theme I would come back to like day after day for periods of my life, just asking myself, like, why does anything exist? Why does anything exist? Why does anything exist? Why does anything exist? Kind of like droning on that. And it would put me in a very strange, what I describe as hyper philosophical state of consciousness. Um, or for example, like repeating a single word, like mind, 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 or consciousness, consciousness, <laughs> or the present, the present, the present. And yeah, I mean, I think like probably a lot of my openings and interesting states of consciousness actually come from that, which no doubt have influenced, you know, other things like how, you know, substances affect me. I'm sure like that, you know, history having done that over and over, for years 
makes my trips completely different than if, you know, I, <laughs> I would have been obsessing about, I don't know, um, reality TV, just as an example. <laughs> very, very different, right? Very, very different. Um, in terms of, I guess, like Dharma, Dharma background, um, you know, I've read Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, um, The Science of Enlightenment by Shenzhen Yang, Right Concentration, um, Opening the Heart of Compassion. Um, there was another one, Seeing That Freeze by Robert Bia. So I have not, however, read The Mind Illuminated, which uh, is probably a big blind spot because I actually suspect that uh, there's a good amount of um, ideas in it that I sort of like stumble upon or rediscovered in this retreat, but I don't know. I just the, the thing I have done is like I saw one presentation from Chula Dasa on YouTube uh, where he talked about the importance of distinguishing attention and awareness, which is something I've, I've been doing for many years, even before like uh, seeing that presentation. And also I read a um, summary chapter uh, from Kach Sotala on Les Wrong. So been exposed very little to it, but a little bit. Um, so again, it's very possible. Uh, a lot of what I will be describing has been uh, described in The Mind Illuminated. I don't know. Uh, I look forward to reading it, but you know, it's one blind spot. <laughs> I've got to be honest about that. Um, yeah, and of course, like, if you've seen any of my videos or read my articles, you know, I'm very philosophical, have a lot of philosophical opinions and perspectives, I think. Uh, meditation is often taught poorly in the sense that uh, they confuse, you know, metaphysics and philosophy with instructions. For example, there's like the whole school of nowhere to go, nothing to do, uh, zazen, you know, just just sit there. If something comes up, that's just an experience, let it go, which doesn't encourage thinking intellectually about the experience. And I think that's a mistake. I think like that's kind of like, elevating the do nothing, do nothing mode uh, of perception to essentially the level of, you know, metaphysics is like, yeah, you shouldn't even think about reality because it's a distraction. On the contrary, you know, I think we should think very carefully and a lot about the nature of reality. And if you do that well, and the thing is like, there's a lot of, you know, dead ends and there's a lot of um, kind of a, uh, uh, ways in which that can fail. But I think if you do it well and you don't get stuck, it, it is actually profoundly synergistic with um, meditation, spirit, spirituality. Um, you get a much more enriched uh, experience, I think, and model of the world and the universe and many more openings and possibilities <laughs> if you also take seriously the task of figuring out what is reality. I think, I think that's important and, and, and you know that's my temperament. It's what I've been doing since the beginning, and I don't see that changing. Um, it probably interferes a little bit with meditation when it comes to having subtle, subconscious, top-down models of what reality is. That said, in practice, I've had like some really strange experiences that in the moment definitely felt you know, that my model of reality was completely wrong. And in retrospect, we're very important information. So I don't think actually this in practice is a hurdle, at least not for me. And I suspect probably not for a lot of people. So anyway, that's just, you know, if you're of the school of uh, just meditate, don't philosophize, 
probably what I have to say is not gonna appeal very much to you. I claim that if you philosophize properly, uh, your meditations will actually be enhanced. You will have like new and interesting effects and yeah, it's so much better. Okay, so onto the logistics of the retreat. It was a 14 day in-house retreat. Essentially what I did was, you know, abstain from any kind of a strong, strong drug. I did uh, try some mild drugs like uh, amino acids uh, for the sake of science to see if they could you know, synergize with the meditation. And I'll talk about that later. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously no alcohol or psychedelics or, you know, weed or anything of the sort. Like I just, you know, I, I, I think like, okay, let's do meditation. Let's do meditation. Um, no internet, um, no sex or, or anything sexual, um, one meal a day, typically healthy, although I didn't abstain from sweets like chocolate every once in a while, which in retrospect probably wasn't ideal. Um, but you know, I, I didn't want to, to, uh, impose too many restrictions, but yeah, essentially, oh yeah, no communications with the outside world. Um, obviously not reading the news or anything of the sort. Um, the things that I did allow myself, you know, I, I listened to approximately two lectures of Robert Bia's Jana meditation retreat every day. And maybe on average, I also saw one guided meditation by Michael Taft, a non-dual guided meditation, which is a different style than the Jana's, but it boosted my concentration. So I think it was like a, a net positive to do that. Um, and also it felt good. Um, and as I'll come back to in, in a moment, you know, Robert Bia is very clear that like in his mind, you need to lead, let the, the day breathe, you know, have your own schedule. Um, and the Janas depend on happiness. And so, you know, if, you, if you're, if you're, if you're having a schedule that doesn't bring you joy on a Jana retreat, probably you're not going to have a lot of openings and that's, that's a missed opportunity. So yeah, I would exercise probably, I mean, you know, not heavy exercise or anything. I would go for a one 40 minute walk and a approximately 80 minute walk every day, except for a couple days, but that would be in general the routine. So I guess like a total of like a hundred, no, a hundred, like two hours of walking every day on average, climbing up like a, a little hill around here. Um, I would sleep as much as I wanted whenever I wanted ended up being about like eight hours a day, except towards the end, which was less for whatever reason. I think like you meditate, as you meditate, you know, every day you need less sleep, I think. And, um, on average I was meditating eight hours a day. Uh, it went as low as six hours in one day where I felt pretty low in energy, um, and tired from like the previous day. And it went as high as like 10 hours and a half. Not very extreme, you know, like Daniel Ingram, when he does his fire casino retreats, <laughs> he actually does something extreme, like, um, 16 hours a day, 18 hours a day. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't know how he does it. Um, I mean, I'm sure you, you get better at it, but, um, yeah. And, you know, and com compared to like the other meditation retreat that I talked about, uh, that led to Buddhist annealing as a, as a paradigm, um, this was a little bit more intense, like more serious, more focused and uh, much more determination, right? Like the, the previous one was like, well, let's cultivate equanimity and loving kindness, probably about like six hours of formal meditation a day. Um, 
it was more more relaxed in that sense. Whereas here was like no mission driven. I'm curious if it, if I can actually experience the first Jana, see see what all the what all the fuzz is about. So yeah, it's got a little bit of a mission driven. You know, one of the first lectures that Robert Bia had was don't put on a schedule. Don't don't think like well by this day I will achieve you know this kind of experience by this day this kind of experience because that will just generate dukkha and I agree. So as soon as I heard that <laughs> like well okay I will do my best really the retreat is for the well-being of my long-term self um but you know I still tried I still tried um and uh yeah with some success so <laughs> so yeah let's talk about let's talk about um I'll just make a note to come back to the mild substances towards the end so Let's talk about like Rob Rubia, uh for a second. So Seeing That Freeze, it's a wonderful book about Dharma. It's very lovely because all of his approach is, you know, like Buddhism and meditation should enhance well-being both in the long term and right now. You know, compare that with like, for example, a lot of people who emphasize equanimity, like intense equanimity, like Shenzhen Young. He might say something like, like, no, strong determination, Zen practice, you know, sit without moving for three hours and don't react and just accept it and train your equanimity. And I think like that's helpful. There's there's a place for it, but also it's pretty gru gruesome. You know, it's like rough, it's like <laughs> unpleasant. And I, you know, I, I took like cold showers every day for like over a year just to practice equanimity. And I think it had its value. It made the day maybe a little bit more focused. But to be completely honest, I think the rubber Bia approach of try to make it feel good in the moment and also in the long term is just better. <laughs> maybe not for like hardcore equanimity practice. I think I think there's like a space for that. But like in general, I like that so much better. It also may be a way to and we'll come back to this. It may be a way to, you know, avoid something like the dark night of the soul, um, where if you're expecting aversion or you're including aversion within your practice because of, you know, uh, codependent arising, uh, you may end up actually having like things like rest, very intense, you know, restlessness and akathisia, restless legs um, as part of your meditation. And maybe that's just unhelpful. I mean, like maybe, maybe, it accelerates the progress of insight. I don't know. I don't know. It should be studied more formally. Okay, so Robert Bia had in the lectures that I highly, highly recommend. I mean, I highly recommend the protocol in general. Just like take two weeks, ideally three weeks, just to do jhana practice. <laughs> um, it was so beautiful and, and, and transformative. Almost like if I were to quantify it, I would say it was like as deep an opening as 3.5 Burning Man's. <laughs> but not any Burning Man, your first Burning Man, because afterwards it kind of like is it's still important, but it's still powerful, but just not as much. Like there's something about like your first Burning Man where like it opens up a sense of what is possible as a human being and what is a life worth living and what is kind of this radical inclusion for 
every others and dedicating yourself to create beautiful experiences for each other and like harnessing the evolution of art for transformative experiences a lot of buzzwordy things but no it's true i mean like going to burning man for the first time for a lot of people is a very profound experience it was very profound for me um no matter how cliche <laughs> no matter how cliche that sounds it's it's true it was very profound um but this was like deeper than that you know deeper than like having an lsd trip or maybe maybe i would put it as like close to like knowing what 5-MeO DMT is like. Um, minus that I think like if all you've ever done is Janet retreat, probably 5-MeO DMT will still give you something new, uh, which by the way, again, I don't recommend most people try. Like if you try 5-MeO DMT, please take like extremely small doses and do it very, very, very carefully. I'm not promoting it for the general public. I think like that would be very foolish. Um, I'm just saying that in terms of like radical transformations in consciousness and perspectives on the universe and, and reality, yeah, um, kind of, kind of in the same ballpark. And I don't think it was like just the Jana retreat. I mean, I think like Jana retreat, of course, in and of itself can be very transformative, but I think Robert Bia as the guide, because he is unbelievably, unbelievably knowledgeable and really smart in the very, very, very expanded notion of intelligence that David Pierce talks about, which includes how to navigate social situations, how to, how to explore and instantiate arbitrary states of consciousness and say new, meaningful and non-trivial things about them, how to teach them to other people, um, how to separate the significant from the insignificant. And, you know, besides all of that, Robert Bia clearly, I mean, I don't think, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't show it off, but like, even from a very conventional perspective, he's obviously super bright. Like, I kept thinking like, wow, like I would love to have Robert Bia also as like, you know, my physics teacher or engineering or computer science teacher. Like, you know, he sounds like so fuzzy at first, kind of like, oh, like a humanities person, but no, 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 Robert Bia is unbelievably like finely technical but in a way that humanities people can understand and grasp and internalize oh my god and like so much of what he was talking about is like very detailed technical explanations of how to hack your consciousness in very welcoming and beautiful ways i it was incredibly moving um yeah just to give you a couple ideas i mean like <clears throat> He talks about, first of all, how whatever you pay attention to gets amplified. Uh, he even used metaphors in terms of, you know, electronic components and things like that, that ultimately, you know, I think the brain is a nonlinear optical computer. It's using electromagnetism. And uh, I do think essentially that attention is essentially... Uh, something that can amplify whatever sensation, especially whatever, you know, mood and mode of being and state of consciousness. You pay attention to it and you're energizing it. You're paying attention to it. You're making it more real, more vivid. You're intensifying it, um, bring it to fruition. So whatever you pay attention to gets energized, but how you pay attention to it matters a lot too. In that 
there are different what he called ways of seeing and ways of seeing again sounds very very fuzzy but <laughs> and if my voice cracks a little bit you know i'm still kind of uh <laughs> slightly discombobulated from from the retreat but you know i'm uh um yeah <laughs> so i may not be as fluid as like in other in other in other videos uh and also yeah probably like my my emotional regulation might be a little bit off it doesn't mean that i'm feeling bad in any way actually i feel great it's um yeah just like still so much content to digest so i think you know from a technical standpoint your attention has not only kind of like a size which could be thought of as like a bucket size but also a wave modulation wave modulation so essentially whatever you pay attention to you know the fuzzy you know a humanities way of talking about it is you have a way of seeing that depends on you know previous experiences and conditions and expectations and motivations and desires and degree of concentration and other other things like that that's all true but also from an even more technical perspective i think that whenever you pay attention to something you can modulate the way you pay attention to it with essentially your emotional tone um and we'll come back to these but essentially i think there's kind of like a loop probably between the frontal cortex which modulates uh attention buckets with uh essentially different resonances that get coupled with probably the limbic system, which essentially function as a wave modulator. So if you're in a bad mood uh, or you approach something with anger, let's say, or like uh, aversion, the way you're going to be energizing that internal representation or that modality or dimensionality or part of the spectrum of your consciousness uh, will essentially depend in that like if it's angry it's going to actually be done in a chaotic and slightly um slightly um erratic and dissonant way whereas if you approach something with complete acceptance and love that the mode of attention itself will have a very soft attack decay sustained release envelope plus it's going to be in a regular rhythmic pattern plus what's inside the wave packet itself will be made of harmonically resonant shapes so loving something is quite literally within your world simulation to kind of like direct a beam of energy to it that is being modulated in such a way that you are interlocking with it and energizing the consonant resonant modes of it um you know this is kind of like connected to the intuitive notion of karma which is like the way you treat your internal representations will affect you emotionally always right because if you treat something with hate and dislike you think phenomenologically it's like outside of you well of course it's within your world simulation and you're going to be energizing its dissonant resonant modes or you know the the matrix of configurations of resonance that generate very unpleasant you know shear patterns and pinch points and stress points and so on um whereas if you approach something with love and with enjoyment you're going to be energizing those 
internal representations in such a way that they will actually start to like couple with each other and, and melt into each other um, and generate kind of like a common currency of resonance across your world simulation. You know, this is a very important insight, um, <laughs> insight in the philosophical sense, not in the uh, Buddhist sense, um, which is that, you know, we've talked a lot about like neural annealing in terms of like the resonances of your world simulation essentially starting to click with each other until the whole thing is actually in phase and coherent. But something that it hadn't really down on me is that there's also these very important process where attention, yes, it is an emergent effect from the way in which awareness is being uh, concentrated in the field of awareness, but there's also really kind of like this additional mechanism, which I call the, the hydra, <laughs> seven, approximately seven buckets of attention that each have their characteristic resonance and they're being modulated through probably the limbic system. And they're essentially coupling with different elements of the world simulation. And this is not obvious because it's not represented. It's not explicitly represented. You can infer that this is what is going on, but is not part is not explicitly represented in, in the conceptual scheme. Um, and so ways of seeing, you know, the way in which Robert B. I was talking about it really made me understand that, yeah, there is this wave modulation that is mood dependent. Now, even stranger is I think this mood dependence has a lot to do with your uh, interoceptive information. Like if you're having a stomachache, in some sense, that's going to affect your mood pretty directly. Um, if you have an ill being, a feeling of ill being in your body, that's going to add essentially dissonances to your mood, um, which you can't ignore uh, and, and uh, or maybe heal uh, or um, hallucinate that they're not there. <laughs> Overimpose a consonant resonant mode on top of it. Uh, there's all sorts of interesting tricks to kind of like bypass unpleasant sensations to enter into a jhana. But um, the point is that we have some sort of like interoceptive resonance box that is producing kind of this emotional spectral component of your experience. And that is modulating each of the waves from the resonances of the attention heads of the, the hydra of your frontal lobes. <laughs> I, I was not thinking about these in that way before the retreat. You know, I, I was thinking about it quite different or rather like that was a missing component. Like this, this whole kind of like wave modulation and attention heads was a missing component from, from the picture. Um, okay, other things that uh, Robert B had talked about. Um, oh, and by the way, I mean, just to be clear, the attention modulation concept is is you know comes from me it's kind of like trying to to make technical uh things that robert bea was talking about in a very you know in a from the point of view of the humanities in a way um there is an important component that okay like uh for most people probably explaining it in kind of that fuzzy you know humanities sense will be more effective because it hooks up to their sense of the poetic you know the the mystical, the deep. 
And uh, that has its own resonance and, and uh, can be deeply motivating. Whereas I think for a lot of people, kind of a cleanly technical, you know, non-poetic description may not actually instantiate it, may not instantiate this deep sense of resonance. Um, unless you're, you're somebody like me or Shenzhen Young and probably, you know, a lot of people in the audience here that can see the mystical in technical, you know, physical, mathematical descriptions of consciousness, which, yeah, I think that's a beautiful aesthetic we can, we can cultivate. It's definitely my, definitely my jam, definitely my jam. Um, you know, very woo sounding, but absolutely real and absolutely essential is Robert Biet talked about various methods for achieving the jhanas. Two that he called like kind of like the most powerful. Well, actually, I, no, that I, 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 he didn't say that. He said there's many ways of achieving the jhanas and it actually doesn't matter. They take roughly the same time. Just choose the one that seems to cause the strongest effects for you and just try it out for the length of the retreat. He talked about like the loving kindness method where you're cultivating love. But as soon as you start having positive feelings in your body, then you focus on those. So loving kindness would be your base practice. But then you focus on the pity, the sense of well-being that comes from it. So there's kind of like a fork in the road. If it was like a loving kindness retreat, you would just continue on the loving kindness path. Because it's a jhana retreat, you move on to the positive feelings in the body. Um, but then the other two kind of like most prominent ones he talked about was like the pure concentration route, which is like, let's say you choose just the feeling in your nostrils and you just focus on that and focus on that and focus on that. Kind of like if it's a very kind of like somewhat one dimensional, there's uh, complications here and that, the, you know, it's not one dimensional at all. Once you have to learn the ways to overcome the, the cool, the sacks and the dead ends of that practice. But, uh, in terms of describing it, yeah, it's very simple and just like, very clean, simple concentration. If you do that at a high enough level of skill for long enough, strong pity will arise. And if you keep paying attention and keep paying attention, you don't even pay attention to the pity in that particular practice. Eventually the pity gets strong enough that then you fall into a jhana. Um, but the one that I chose partly but I, th I think partly because it was the most insightful, I think like philosophically, it would give me the most information also because it was giving me the strongest effects, even though it really was the first time I was doing it this way is the energy body approach. Uh, so I love that because the energy body is a phenomenological reality. And I think it's essentially this interoceptive uh, spectral decomposition of what is going on in your body that gives you at a glance what in QRI we have talked about as the CDNS of your experience, the consonance, dissonance, noise, signature of your experience. Uh, so you're really kind of like focusing on the spectrum. <laughs> you're not focusing as much on the details of where is what. You're more focusing on, in aggregate, what is the quality, the texture, the modes, the texture of the aggregates of the modes of vibration in your body, but not only just your physical body, but also your body as it extends a little bit outwards. It's kind of like this egg shaped <laughs> structure. It's not all of your world simulation, uh, although I'm sure you could do it that way as well. But you know, the instructions were a little bit outside your body as well. 
Focus on the texture of the waves that exist there and call that your energy body. Okay, you know, I'm sure if you're a direct realist about perception or if you're, you know, 2000 years ago or whatever, yeah, of course, of course it made sense to think of that as like your soul, you know, or like your kind of others, this additional kind of like sheet of, you know, spiritual energy around you or something like that. I don't think you need to go there. I mean, you can just have like the world simulationist perspective of indirect realism about perception where, no, actually these are, is a nonlinear wave computing phenomena and it's how information is processed in your world simulation and it's something you can tune into. So, and in some sense, it doesn't exist until you pay attention to it. I mean, it, it, it sort of exists in the background, but then it becomes reified and then it becomes like more real. And actually, and this is kind of like a technical explanation that I think of, eventually you actually can turn your energy body into an antenna for very, very, you know, broad, a broad range of nonlinear resonant uh, behavior. Um, so, and he actually talked about it as an antenna. So he talks about like, if you focus on the energy body and you identify what is what feels good within it and you tune into it. So, you know, I kept repeating these three words over and over and over, which is sensitivity. You pay attention to what's there and like really, really kind of like subtle sensations. What's there? What's there? What is in the energy body? What is the spectral decomposition of it? What dissonances, what consonances, what noise, in what region of the spectrum? Are they in phase, out of phase? Um, the second word is responsivity, which is like, you don't just look into it. You also play with it. You work with it. You, you, you uh, see what are the open possibilities. Like if, if the well-being is not increasing, don't just sit there. <laughs> don't just sit there. Do something. Uh, and, and, you know, he had like so many options, you know, it's a menu of options. It's a very active kind of meditation. It's not, it's not, or rather passivity <laughs> is one tool that you can use among many. So one example is like, okay, nothing is happening. Sorry, you, you don't feel good. You just feel neutral. So let's say you drop a word like love, just as a tincture, like a tiny drop in what would be otherwise just kind of the pure energy body practice. And maybe that causes a little bit of a heart resonance. If that feels good, if it definitely feels good, <laughs> then you pay attention to it. And you pay attention to it and you pay attention to it. And you play with the way in which you pay attention to it. Like, are you focusing on it and contracting? Or are you kind of like probing it, entering into it? and spreading it around, or you kind of like step outside of it and you experience it as an other and you bask in that pleasure, in that feeling of enjoyment, or do you just shine a light into it? You hallucinate, you create, imagine there's a sphere of light and you shine light into it, or you submerge it in, in imaginary water and you let it cool. Does that make it feel better or worse? You experiment and you experiment and you experiment because what's going to make it better is going to be very person specific and of course, very state specific. 
And that, that was amazing as an instruction. It's like, wow, like this <laughs> meditation instructor is treating me as an adult. He's treating me as, you know, as somebody who has like aspirations for mastery in this domain. It's not, it's not just kind of like, oh, here are the three instructions and you just do it. It's, uh, it's like, no, get in touch with your mind. Know what works, what doesn't work. And then the, the third word is attunement. So throughout the days, as you spend more time doing this practice, oh boy, <laughs> the energy body starts to get energized uh, because you're paying so much attention to it. Hour after hour, you go on a walk and you do walking meditation, you come, come back, you eat mindfully. Ah. And you notice how there's energy buildup and actually, I would compare it like I, I got pretty high. I mean, relatively speaking, like uh, I think I could pick around like the eighth day. We were, we were talking about like something that felt like the equivalent of like 75 micrograms of LSD in terms of like the energy enhancement, not in terms of the phenomenological details. I mean, like there definitely were like some tracer effects. Um, there was no drifting no drifting effects everything was like where where they're supposed to be Ab absolutely yes intensification of colors for sure um and like much more sensitivity to some frequencies like there were some sounds that usually don't bother me that were like like uh, would connect with my <laughs> energy body and make it resonate oftentimes in an unpleasant way but again it doesn't matter you don't pay attention to those i mean like again if you if you get obsessed about like well this happened and took me out of my meditation that just feeds it right so so uh, one of the very early instructions that that he had was uh we don't want the jhanas that we cultivate to be brittle right so it's fine if there's no if it's fine if there are like cars around if somebody bothers you or or distracts you or you learn something you're not supposed to learn or you know for don't 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 reify the retreat so much that it actually uh, you're energizing the feeling that your meditation is going poorly like that that itself is going to ruin your meditation so uh that, that was very important and very very helpful but yeah absolutely like intensified neuroacoustics uh i mean towards the end of the retreat oh my gosh the I, i'm you know in the spectrum of like from aphantasia where like you don't see anything you can't imagine anything visual you know all the way to like let's say like 10 out of 10, like super visualizer where you can visualize a scene in 3D perfectly. I would say like my natural baseline, so let's say like five is average. I would say I'm probably like a seven or something like that. Like I can definitely imagine like shapes and figures and polyhedra and interesting scenes. Uh, but my mind's eye is not as bright as like, you know, everyday life. I'm not a 10 or anything like that. Towards the end of the retreat, probably I was getting to like being an 8.5 or like a nine. Um, like when, you know, a meditation where I would like imagine various like light sources, they were very real, like very, very, absolutely very impactful on, on the organism. Um, so absolutely a buildup of energy. And also I think like that's why I probably didn't need to sleep as much as the retreat went on. Um, and in terms of also like um, the emotional quality, it would feel kind of like 10 milligrams of a weed edible, like 10 milligrams of THC. Um, 
with a caveat that uh, it wouldn't have kind of the gunky uh, lack of clarity. Like it was a crystal clear state. It just kind of like buzzing and energized. Um, very impactful, quite like I was pretty sensitive. Uh, and uh, yeah, so, so definitely you get a high just on just on meditation it's it's fascinating my previous retreat i i don't absolutely did not go as as high as that like maybe it, it felt like a microdose or something but no all this was like <laughs> i'm very energized right now <laughs> um so you've got to be careful i think uh you actually need a good environment uh you don't want somebody screaming at you or whatever i mean i'm, I'm very fortunate i had a very optimal i would say very optimal circumstance um, so as your energy body becomes energized, um, you're able to build more sophisticated structures in it. And then also pre-existing patterns begin to melt. And it's almost as if the structures that you have been reifying for years become kind of like transparent and there's like cracks in between them through which energy can flow. And so at the very, you know, the first several days of the retreat like energy would rise phenomenal energy would rise kind of like in this toroidal fashion uh, but it would get kind of like choppy and like um restless like it felt a lot like akathisia and restless legs sort of but like again like the approach was like find what's enjoyable don't think about like what's unpleasant that that doesn't help just focus on what's enjoyable and he had this instruction that like if there's like too much energy you should actually try to like widen the channels as opposed to like use it as a catharsis to kind of like, oh, move around. That, that just wastes energy. Actually, he was all about like, let the energy build up. Let it, that's, that's so much better. And uh, yeah, like that also is kind of what gets you high, I suppose, that you're not like wasting the energy. You're not uh, dancing. You're not it's like, no, no, no. Like I'm here for a reason. I'm going to build up the energy. And that's, that's how it gets psychedelic. You don't move. And if there's constrictions, you mentally open up the channels or you do other tricks, many other tricks. You know, you, you imagine like fire, for example, that like breaks up the blockages like um, or you imagine there's kind of like this wobbly movement from left to right or like horizontal movement or up and down. And you kind of like slowly undo the, uh, the knots and the patterns of tension that are constricting the energy flow, whatever in the moment has the strongest and most beneficial effects out of like a wide variety of like menu options, essentially. So you keep doing and you keep doing that. And at some point, um, yeah, I guess I'm going to jump into the, uh, the timeline. So the first day I really was just kind of like switching from like doing, 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 you know, I've had like a very busy last six months, last year, you know, from like <laughs> doing the, TED talk, preparing for the TED talk, to going to New York, to meet David Pierce, to the Tiringham Initiative in the UK, to, oh my gosh, grant applications, you know, planning. There's a lot of things actually we haven't even announced. Um, like we got accepted for a peer reviewed publication, a philosophy journal, uh, writing another paper, collaborating. Anyway, just and of course the QRI community and making, you know, organizing parties and <laughs> uh, 
you know, meetups. Oh my gosh. Anyway, just from doing, 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 doing to actually, I'm not checking the internet at all. I'm just meditating. Yeah, the first day was like just, just a change of mindset, just a change of mindset. Um, I think I meditated like very little formally that day. But then the next two days really felt kind of like slowing down. Uh, and I had a, a couple of interesting openings actually on the third day uh, in the morning as I was meditating. I had like some 5-MeO DMT feelings. I mean, I guess like a, by then I already had had like a, a full day of like eight hours of meditation. Um, so I already was kind of like, okay, energized into the groove, getting into the groove. I had these like opening of like what felt like this very, 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 very thin physicality, materiality, just space in this very peaceful way that can be characteristic of like a low dose of 5-MeO-DMT. Like, I mean, it's a very altered, it's like a very altered experience. And that lasted like probably like half an hour uh, and then it went away. And like, that's the only time I experienced that during the retreat. But it, I think it's just like, yeah, worth pointing out that that, that happened on the third day. I don't know why. Um, and then also like some imaginal practice, uh, mostly so that I would like focus, focus on the task, like remind myself like why I'm here. I'm here for the jhanas. It's not just, it's not a vacation. <laughs> it's a retreat. You know, it's in some sense it's work, but it's also work and, and play, work and play. So a lot of that. And then uh, uh, sometimes I would use a little bit of like sacred geometric meditation as I've done recently um, like imagining like a torus a tiny torus in the energy centers of your body to kind of like dislodge um, rigidity various other like techniques and like very it felt good and everything but like nothing 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 extreme well on the fourth day, that's when I started to experience strong PD. Like my hands were like very warm. Like my lip was like, lips were very warm. Like this feeling of warmth and like well-being and <sighs> like very pleasant. But it still wasn't spreading throughout my body. Um, and But I think like th towards like the end of the fourth day, I had like a couple like powerful openings of like, oh, and here's like where the concept of a uh, geometric frustration really comes into play because the first like very strong PD openings actually felt kind of explosive, kind of like from a region of my body kind of um, very strange, but it was not all my body. Like it was like a chimeric, like parts of my body, like, um, and it definitely felt like a change of, you know, the cellular automotive rules of the neural network as it were, and not completely positive. Like actually, if you, if you know of like signal processing or like you, you've ever made like music, you know, like there's, or, or play with a synthesizer, there's like triangular waves as opposed to sinusoidal waves or square waves. So the triangular waves, they feel kind of like sharp and like spiky. And so the CDNS, you know, the consonants, dissonance, noise, component of these patches of resonance of intense pity uh they were triangular at first a mixture of like consonant and triangular and so 
I mean, it was very pleasant and very warm and almost erotic in, in its tone. Uh, but also kind of, there was a lot of kind of like energetic dirt, you could imagine. Like that was like getting annealed away and had like these sharp pinch points. So I would also compare it to like if you've ever had like a niacin rush, you know, not just a mild one. You know, like you take like half a gram of niacin and it's like, <laughs> it feels very hot, right? Hot and uh, and pressured, but it's not entirely pleasant. It's actually kind of like a very mixed experience because it's like spiky and there's um, kind of like fault lines. Okay, so what I also noticed is that as these wave propagated, I have like a injury on one of my one of you know lower side of my body. Whatever, I I don't notice it. Almost don't notice it at all anymore. This happened like five years ago. Uh, but it came it came again like the feeling came again because the waves did not go through like that tiny injury instead they wrapped around and the way they wrapped around they collided with themselves in a way that didn't meet uh, in an integer number of times and so all of a sudden you know this tiny imperfection is like a, a huge source of dissonance <laughs> sorry i hope it's not too loud um and so as this PD propagates in your body, you actually start noticing all the ways in which there are pinch points and shear points that you weren't even aware of before. You, you, you thought that earlier in the meditation you, can, you had smoothed it out, but it's not true. Like it's still there and it becomes very energized. And, and I've heard, for example, that um, uh, some people describe like, yeah, at first, the first, the first Jana or the PD, the PD before the first Jana, feels kind of like you're a super saiyan. It's kind of like this very intense, bright energy, but it's kind of mixed. Absolutely, it was like that. On the whole though, it was very pleasant. And if I could just like press a button and get like that over my body, like, yeah, I probably would press it pretty often because it was good. It was good, but mixed, good, but mixed. And I learned afterwards um, with Robert Bia's uh, comments that once you experience the third jhana, um, it affects the way you experience the lower jhanas. And so he actually says, like, as you, if you're a relative beginner and I'm a relative beginner, you should just like put kind of like post-it notes on the states that you experience, as opposed to saying like, then, you know, this was the fourth jhana, I'm done. I know what the fourth jhana is like. No, because as you explore the space further, um, the deep, marinating in the experience of one of them transforms the way the other ones feel. And I think it's like a, you know, multi-step, multi-scale, long-term, you know, annealing and harmonization process. So, okay, like I knew, okay, these are like bursts of, um, of PD are probably close to the first jhana, but, but uh, they still feel very, very mixed. Now, Something else happened afterwards, which is on the fifth day, for whatever reason, actually, I uh, put on, uh, I, I lifted, so I put on like Habit Rouge by uh, Guerlain, which is a beautiful perfume. It's bergamot and like white floral for men. I, I love it. It's a beautiful perfume. Um, and it caused this feeling of like peace. Oh, and also I should mention like, you know, I, I kept drinking uh, coffee every day because you know, actually, Robert Bia specifically said, like, don't try to do more than one thing in this retreat. Like, just go for the jhanas. Don't 
try to look, okay, maybe also I'll quit caffeine or maybe also I'll do something else. Because if you do that, then that, that dilutes the intentions. And, and we don't want that, right? Like we don't want to dilute the intentions. We want to keep them like as, as uh, focused as possible. So um, I was drinking between like four cups of coffee or including, you know, sugar-free Red Bull a day um, and two. So in this day, on the fifth day, I experimented with just having two to see if like that would relax me. And yes, absolutely. So like rather than like entering something like, oh, this like strong pity, I think, I think I actually experienced like a light version of the third jhana, which was this like otherworldly feeling of peace that was very profound and like, and the only other place where anything like that has ever happened is actually in a, unexpectedly as a very, very unusual DMT experience involving like a spaceship <laughs> where like some alien from another civilization kind of like comes down, like opens its spaceship and it enters and it's there. And uh, there's crazy energies and crazy intense emotions, but the space has these like otherworldly sense of peace that everything is fine. Everything is ultimately okay. This feeling of well-being and happiness, but but peaceful, kind of like satisfied. And so for whatever reason, I experienced a very strong version of that on the, on the fifth day towards the end of the day. And I think it had to do with kind of like lowering the caffeine intake, I think. On the whole, I got the impression that caffeine helped with a PT and the first jhana, but it would hamper the, you know, the peacefulness of higher jhanas. I think, I think that was like my overall impression. Again, like post-it notes and all of these things. I'm not completely confident. So, and that experience then morphed into what I thought was like the beginnings of the second jhana. And that was joy, like unbelievable joy like ah uh, like i would compare it to like getting really good news like okay like this is very you know ego driven and we'll talk about that but like when i learned for example that i won the national youth award for academic achievements which there's only one in the entire country in mexico every year you know like the most accomplished you know person under 20 years old on the entire country every year gets that award. And I got that award when I was 18 years old. And I remember when, when my mom um, <laughs> called me, I was in Norway and I remember the feeling like, it was like, wow, this is next level. This is like, like, oh my gosh, it actually worked. Like out of whatever, like 10,000 plus applicants, like I got that prize. And completely selfish and, you know, ego-driven. Of course, like at the time, it's like, well, it is also like it's a vindication of my path and my determination and my decision to be, you know, in, uh, in you know, whatever. Um, it had a very wholesome quality too. But independent of, of that, just like the, the surprise causing like intense joy. And that joy probably lasted like, two or three hours and then it's gone, right? And, and I never thought of like, oh, let's focus on the feeling of joy. Instead, 
the reaction, of course, was like, well, what's next? <laughs> what should we achieve now? Right? Not realizing, oh my gosh, I just experienced this intense joy. Um, I would also compare it to like the feeling of getting a gift from somebody very special or, or let's say like a letter, um, somebody you're really into, uh, as a teenager where like your hormones are crazy and like you're really, you know, you're very not in love, you know, it's puppy love, but like you're, you're craving the attention of like somebody you're very, very, very attracted to. And out of the blue, they say like, you want to come over and play video games or do you want to, you know, go into the woods and have a walk or something like, okay, maybe you're uncertain of like whether that's going to actually lead into, you know, but like they offered you a first date and like that moment you're overjoyed and, and, and there's a texture to it. And that feeling is what I experienced in a very, very intense, clean, clean way. And, and it actually was kind of the, the feelings, what I, th again, think, post-it note, I think were the beginnings of the third jhana. It was a texture. It was kind of like a fabric of experience that is very, very, very subtle and very, very, very th thin and ethereal and extremely soft and feathery then getting curved and becoming kind of like corduroy so it's still very soft but it has kind of like little ridges and so and i think this is also from like the non-linear wave computing perspective those ridges make emit waves so that the waves meet so it's almost kind of like the second jhana i think is kind of the third jhana experiencing itself it's kind of like it's the third jhana knowing itself, which causes buzzing sensations and like dilutes the cleanliness, but adds kind of like extra energy and interactivity and almost kind of like a feeling of a social element to it. It's like the fabric of reality is knowing itself um, and playing with itself. So, <laughs> oh my goodness. And, and the next morning, so that whole lasted probably like, like 20 minutes like strong strong like for like like 10 minutes and then 20 minutes of kind of like still there and then like an afterglow of like an hour and then i went to sleep and um and in the morning ah, i was so peaceful like it felt like the energy body was very very clean and uh i was breathing so slowly like so slow and so smooth and apparently that is like very tightly related with the jhanas that like as you go higher on the jhanas your breathing becomes like more delicate and like more constant absolutely so like i was breathing so smoothly on the morning of the sixth day and absolutely that changed how later on i felt a pity in that like no more triangular waves like now the PD was like so much smoother um, but also it felt like it would take longer to build up because maybe maybe it's kind of like it felt less compressed there was kind of less uh, there was more space that needed to be filled up with a feeling of enjoyment and happiness and warmth um, and I kept doing that um, and I think at that point a little bit kind of like a competitive energy came into place like Maybe the joy reactivated something and 
I had like these feelings from when I was in math Olympiads, like um, very competitive, like, 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 yes, I'm going to get in, you know, I'm going to achieve the best state and like do it quickly. And like, kind of like this, like, oh, there's going to be an international consciousness Olympiad and I'm going to participate in <laughs> very, very competitive. And ironically, that mindset kills the Janus. You cannot enter the Janus if you have that mindset. So actually I had to kind of like work through a lot of kind of those ego energy, which I, I um, um, can be helpful. But at the same time, like I kept realizing that on some level, something like math Olympiads or intense intellectual competitions. And I'm sure also like, <laughs> I'm sure also competing in sports, probably. There's a way of seeing it where like in some sense you are participating in a duka factory right like somebody is gonna lose there's a lot of people who really really into it and some of them are not gonna make it right so and that could be you so there's an element of like yes you're you're pursuing competence and you're competent and you feel good about yourself and you're putting a lot of hours into practice and you're determined and there's something very valuable about that but then also there's this feeling of like I want to be the best and and the feeling of being a loser is not going to fall on me right and in the end of course it can fall on you like i'm not going to go into i might mention a little bit but like like <laughs> i almost went to the imo like i i i ended up in you know being in the seventh position in in the final 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 you know examination for, from the mexican math olympiad and it was just by like two points and it was kind of traumatizing because like I would have gone to the IMO and to be honest, I would probably have gotten something like, like a bronze medal. I don't think I was like even silver. I was not even like silver material, but then I had like two more years I could have participated. But as opposed to just being obsessed with a competition, I decided instead to go to Norway uh, and accept a scholarship for the United World Colleges, which was actually a much more soulful decision as opposed to like no i'm just gonna be the best at math and like whatever so in the end though a funny thing is that actually they prepare you so much better in mexico like people don't know this but like uh mexican competitors in the math olympiads are just way stronger than like norwegians <laughs> most people don't know this but it's absolutely the case like by a lot right so i stopped actually training and regardless, in Norway, with no effort, I made it into like I was like number one in the entire country in their own, own Olympiad. Um, but uh, obviously, you cannot go and represent a country that you're not a citizen of. So, plus, I'm sure in Mexico they would have thought of that as a big betrayal or whatever. So, uh, obviously, I didn't go to the IMO, even though I, I would obviously have qualified in in Norway two twice two two years. But, you know, like all of that feeling of like this frustrated feeling of um, like I was almost there, like. Mm, and it's even more frustrating because I actually did solve a problem that would have pushed me over the edge, but I forgot to explain a tiny component of it that I did figure out. And like all of that just plain ego energies, but they're kind of like wrapped up and intermingled with the feeling of desire for competence and achievement at a high level and so it's kind of a mixed thing i'm not gonna say just like oh yeah let's get rid of competitions because they're bad for you 
And actually, over the days, I realized that, like, yes, actually, they do cause a lot of dukkha. But they're also, in some sense, good for the soul. Like, like yes, losing sucks, but really challenging yourself is an important part of kind of, like, a good aspect of the human experience. And anyway, I came, I went back and forth. In the end, I actually processed a lot of that, and, and I think it was very healthy. Uh, and I shifted actually from kind of like the mindset of like, oh yeah, I want to achieve the Janus and kind of this competitive mindset, which was not helpful. Actually, that's, that's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a feature, not a bug that anybody who's just in there for the, for bad reasons or like, you know, very egotistical reasons is not going to make more, much progress. Like the actual energy, the, the energy of that kind of motivation causes a subtle tension that almost essentially gates. Robert Bia says, Janus depend on happiness and Janus depend on openness of the heart. <laughs> and so, yeah, that motivation is incompatible with that. You know, if you're competing, you know, intensely competing, you know, with other people in the math competition is like, that is, that's not a very open-hearted approach. Whereas I converged on the motivation. I mean, something obviously I've thought a lot about and is obviously a part of my motivation for many years already, but this made it really clear that this is not, you know, there's like the ego motivations, but then there's also these kind of like more clean and beautiful and, you know, loving motivation, which I call qualia mastery which has three components. So first of all, it's like you do it for the sake of others. I mean, and yourself, but like for the sake of the well-being of sentient beings. It's not just for your tribe. It's not just for yourself. It's not just for your pride. It's for the well-being of everybody. And you deep, deeply feel that. I mean, like, you know, so if somebody is sacrificing some, some aspects, like, for example, being vegan or vegetarian, it's like, well, they're sacrificing some social components, they're sacrificing some tastes and so on. Um, but, you know, doing it for the sake of other sentient beings, like that quality is very, very helpful, intrinsically good, but also is helpful for the Janus. Um, the other two elements of what I called qualia mastery, qualia mastery is being able to instantiate any state of consciousness you want, not only exogenously, but even ideally endogenously. So being like a, an expert in how to instantiate qualia states. But then the third one, which is not a part in general of, I suppose, like meditation circles or spiritual circles is also the cultivation of an intellectual understanding. So those three things combined, you know, altruism for the sake of others, for the sake of knowing from a first person perspective, intimately, states of consciousness, exotic states of consciousness, and third, understanding them intellectually, philosophically, scientifically, I think they synergize and they create this beautiful, beautiful motivational architecture. It is not for showing off and it's not for getting a prize. <laughs> it's something that has inherent value. And using that as the motivation was very Jana compatible. Like that was like, yes, okay, you're, you're here for a very good reason. It's very soulful. It's very, very um, wholesome. 
and it allows openness of the heart. So yeah, I would say like between the sixth day and like maybe the tenth or eleventh day, like there was a there was a lot of like annealing in the direction of like okay, let's like cleanly separate like ego drives versus like quilia mastery drives, altruistic drives. Now on the eighth day, I think I actually had the most powerful like Jana related experience, which was. <laughs> towards the end, end of the day. And I think I experienced like, not just like intense PD propagating and kind of like covering my body, uh, even a couple of days before also, I didn't mention it, but like the PD actually not was not only spreading in my body, but also like kind of like got into my brain <laughs> and kind of like a, inside, like not only the skin, but like inside my brain, <laughs> like very delicious, beautiful, very, very nice and dense pleasure. <laughs> but then on the eighth day i think that was the like a strong experience of the first jana where it was not it was not my body in the conventional sense it was my energy body and it felt like a mixture of like a very pleasant very very pleasant feeling of warming up like in a hot tub together with like an orgasm but not without visualizing something sexual just the embodied feeling of an orgasm or getting close to an orgasm mixed in with a feeling of pressure and expansion and contraction and those three things formed a feedback loop that i called a non-linear self-sustaining resonance i don't know where the energy comes from i mean like i have a theory that like okay, like janas are essentially a, a, an attractor where the top-down influence of local field potentials and the bottom-up influence of neural coherence feed on each other and essentially is a very energetically uh, efficient uh, feedback loop between neural coherence and strong local field potentials and yeah, it very much feels like when you're very close to the, there's kind of like an attractor basin of that very strong feedback loop. And uh, yeah, on the eighth day, I, I just managed to like land there. And like, it took me and like, whoa, like I, I was expecting like a strong feeling, but like this, to give you an idea, it was comparable to like the body feelings of like, 15 milligrams of DMT or 20 milligrams of DMT without the visuals. I mean, some visuals actually, yeah, like some like red and white light, like um, resonant, uh, reverby kind of, um, uh, you know, like if you look at a street when it's very hot and like you see the reverberation of, of the air, kind of like the, um, you know what I'm talking about? Like this lensing effect of the different densities of air when, and asphalt is very hot that but like red and 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 white like i i saw that in my visual field but relative to the body feeling that was a very tiny component although i think it was like synergistic and it was like you know resonantly coupled um and also sound like there was a very beautiful sound together with it and very packed it was not like just a clean thing it was like very packed in the spectrum and uh it was powerful that was powerful like it was like 
I lost my sense of my body. Like it's not like no, like it's not a, I don't have hands. I'm just these like egg-shaped energy bundle that is vibrating in this complex, somewhat chaotic, but very orderly way. I also thought that it was very related with quasi-crystals, actually. Like there's something very regular about it, which is like there's there's like smoothness in it, but but um, it's almost kind of like those three elements, you know, the orgasmic quality, the, the hot quality, and the expansion and contraction quality. It's kind of like there's a cellular automata, sort of, that is passing energy from one to the other. And the energy is being, you know, it stays within the system, but it's changing form. And it's changing form kind of like rock, paper, scissors, like if you make an evolutionary cellular automata right like with there's like rock paper scissors and you see like how there's like like oh like a wave of rocks are like eating away a wave of uh oh scissors was it eating away a wave of paper and like the whole thing is like you, you know what i'm talking about like three states that feed on each other so it's not a crystal structure but it's kind of like a quasi crystal and uh, there's a lot of regularity and every transition is pleasant and every transition keeps energy but as a whole, the whole and, and yes, if you zoom out from a certain distance, it is kind of like a phase, a phase of matter, phase of matter and energy. But if you zoom in very closely, actually it's full of kind of uh, irregularities. So that's one one thing. But then the other thing, and this, I think, was the most important, one of the most important insights here um, is that the core was also resonating. So actually there was a kind of element that most psychedelics don't have uh directly because most psychedelics kind of energize the world simulation the kind of um what ultimately i end up talking about like in terms of kind of like an, the html of your experience but they don't necessarily energize your attention centers the jhanas i think actually take your attention centers and <laughs> kind of um, make them vibrate front and back at a very high frequency that is um, in a state of resonance with the kind of like more static elements of your world simulation. So it's kind of like the other, which are the elements of your world simulation and the self, uh, which is kind of like the attention heads being directed and modulated via the limbic system. Those two things enter in resonance is not only the elements of the world simulation. Okay, so that happened on the eighth day, uh, 9th to 11th. I think there was like a lot of emotional healing afterwards. Um, things from the past would come up, uh, hindrances, but I had kind of like this affordance, this resource of bliss and happiness that came from those experiences. Then I think like 11 and 12th day, I had a... Another opening, like, so I, I've experienced, experienced like, the, the, what I think is the first jhana, but again, like, very, like, so much stronger, like, so much stronger than just, like, strong PD. Like, it, it is a phase transition. I absolutely believe that, like, a lot of people, if they just had what I was experiencing, let's say, on the fourth day, like, the PD, they probably will say, like, oh, the, this is the first jhana. Um, and maybe that is a, a light jhana, maybe. You could, you could maybe say that. 
but whatever it was afterwards it was like another level entirely and very like psychedelic level again like 15 milligrams of dmt or something like that is like very very obvious like it's <laughs> there's no mistake and it. it really felt like a dam broke and just flooded with energy like it <laughs> or my body like <laughs> illuminated and uh it didn't last very long i mean like the the actual very very intense energy the first time it happened it probably 10 seconds and then a long afterglow the next times it happened uh i think the longest it was probably like 30 seconds i'm i know that you could extend it and you know as i practice more and probably i'll be able to extend it more I don't know. I mean, maybe some people are just lucky and they can have these Janic experiences. I don't know, like after a year or, or six months of like meditating half an hour a day or something. Obviously, for me, it took a lot longer. It's possible other people will require like even more. I would just say patience and perseverance and like, yes, have intense determination, but don't don't be disappointed because i mean i remember like in the retreat like lots and lots of hours of like well actually i'm not experiencing pity um i think on the third day before like uh the opening of that day like i almost felt like i almost want to just go back and like start writing philosophy and forget about the meditation retreat it's kind of like boring and tedious and exhausting um but no i mean if, if you want to experience it don't give up uh keep going keep going it, it feels like nothing is happening but actually there's like very subtle fine-tuning that is going on in the background so keep going keep going <laughs> keep going it does get better um and you know the last two days of the retreat i mean i really I, yeah, whatever i was hoping i was hoping you know it's kind of like well okay like i've had these powerful openings could i stabilize it could i bring it back and keep it there the answer is uh no the last two days like nothing interesting happened um and uh eh, whatever you know i'm sure it still did something helpful i'll review that like i'll say the last day actually i did have like a new phenomenology which i actually associate with uh continuing to energize and energize an internal change of step uh, state because in the morning of the last day uh i mean i was experiencing tremendous amounts of compassion and and love and yeah, I mean, kind of like sadness about the suffering of the universe, but turned into beautiful compassion as well. It was kind of mixed. I was focusing on the good parts, obviously, as the instruction, but it was liquefied. And like, that was a very interesting thing. Like, I also associate that with kind of like low dose 5-MeO DMT, where like your bodily sense, it's kind of like from being solid, it kind of becomes liquid and like, Lots of like spirals and liquid instabilities, kind of like the Kevin Helmholtz instability, but in an embodied fashion. Um, and that lasted maybe like two or three hours. Uh, it went away when I went for a walk and it didn't come back. So again, like lots of interesting, strange effects. Um, but uh, no, no strong Jana. And, uh, you know, it's been, I think, like three, three full days since the retreat ended and uh, in those days i've meditated only like 90 minutes a day and i i feel like i'm definitely not back to baseline but i'm like mostly back 
And uh, the first day after the retreat, I still felt throughout the day, like essentially there was like momentum from the retreat and like the meditation was still like much deeper. But uh, yesterday we had like a Thanksgiving dinner and I was mostly back to baseline. It was, it was a bit more sensitive. Uh, <laughs> I was like seeing things in people that I might not experience as clearly. Like for example, uh, people's craving for a positive self view was like much more obvious and how it manifests and noticing a little bit how their body language <clears throat> suggests um, specific kinds of like emotional blockages. Like I think like sens becoming sensitive in that kind of way probably happens, um, but nothing too out of the ordinary. But then again, like, you know, I did an experiment with uh, psychedelics. Um, I know that some people say if, you know, at the end, the last day of your, your retreat, you take LSD or something like it's way more powerful than if you had just taken LSD outside of, of a retreat context. Obviously, yeah, no, I, I didn't want to. Uh, I just wanted to see like what a Jana retreat does. So um, I, I, that's it. I will I will add I did experiment with perfumes and I experimented with mild, mild substances. So I trial uh, L-tyrosine which was uh, mildly stimulating. I, th I think it actually helped with a kind of a pity, like start kickstarting pity. Not, not so much like sustaining it, but just like kind of like <laughs> getting a, a spark of pity to then like start growing. Uh, Acmatine, Acmatine is very complicated in high doses. It it's a, has a blunting effect and I think it deeply affects the neuroacoustics and I think it would be generally a net negative, but I, in my experience, very small doses of acmatine actually are kind of like heart opening. And uh, that was true. So essentially some of the most beautiful, oh, actually like four dimensional um, kind of like compactified additional resonances that I experienced kind of like heart melodies happened like an hour after I took 50 milligrams of acmatine, which is very little, but that was very obviously very sensitive and it was very clear that it did something and it, it only lasted like an hour or like an hour and a half. Uh, I tried glycine, very mildly relaxing, nothing to write home about. Elthanine, nothing to write home about, same as usual. GABA, just uh, pure plain GABA, usually is very subtle. The Not, not, not here. Uh, the GABA was very strong, very, very strong effect and very mixed. Uh, essentially that took me to kind of like a, a GABA specific jhana, I guess, which was kind of a version of the first jhana, but with feelings of cold and a balance that rather than kind of a finely balanced push and pull or um, expansion and contraction, it was much more um, kind of contraction of kind of like a pulling variety. It was not pleasant. It wasn't terrible. And like I approached it with enough equanimity that it didn't really matter, but um, I don't know. I've, I've never heard of <laughs> GABA causing like strong effects and I was not expecting it to have like this strong effect, but it, it was like very, very obviously, like it was like obviously the effect of the, of the GABA. I mean, I, maybe I'll try it once more, but it was like, I don't think it was beneficial. It wasn't bad, but, uh, anyway, I'm just reporting. It had like obvious, obvious strong effect and it was just like 500 milligrams. So also like a, a pretty mild amount. And uh, caffeine, caffeine, I, I thought it was fine. I mean, again, like an average of uh, an average of like three drinks a day, uh, some days two, 
some days three, some days four. One day where it was like four, it put me, it was kind of too, too much anxiety, but not, not, nothing I couldn't deal with. It, it was okay. And one day where I had two, it was kind of too sluggish. So anyway, I would probably just recommend like when it comes to like coffee or like, you know, mild substances that you take every day to just stay with it. I mean, unless you take like several weeks in advance before the retreat to kind of like get to a new baseline or change your habits, just stick to whatever is normal to you, you know, like whatever is normal, whatever is sustainable with your life, just, just go with it. I know some people have like strong views of like, yeah, no coffee and meditation should not be mixed. Nah, my, my experience, it was like, it had pros and cons. And honestly, I think more pros than <laughs> cons because like being a very alert and motivated as coffee makes me feel, um, actually I think like increases the chances of uh, PD. And, and oftentimes I think that's the, the hardest step to just get a little, get the PD started and then start working with it. In terms of uh, perfumes, um, I, I don't think many of you care very much, but um, the perfume of the retreat was these, which was like Pinot Silvestre. It's kind of like I started with this one and I ended with this one. And it, you know, it smells like my Jana retreat, <laughs> forming a very beautiful memories um it had kind of like a neutral slightly positive effect on on the janic uh qualia but there were definitely interactions so noble fig by ferrari or samsara by guerlain and aromatic fougeres in general were very anti-janic i would not like noble fig in particular has nothing of noble <laughs> oh my goodness noble fig because he's like slightly spiky and um prickly but if you're already in a very deep, like highly concentrated state of consciousness, that it becomes amplified. And so I was actually having hallucinations of barbed wire and spikes and like long lines. And it was very sharp and completely antigenic. And uh, I took off the shirt where I, I had put on that, that perfume. And instead I put on some Fearless, which is a perfume that I've des designed and made. And uh, instantly... You know, within 10 seconds, that went away and I entered into like a much, much better, much more conducive state. So fearless actually worked uh, as a kind of like canceling out fear. I was very surprised. Absolutely very, very helpful. And uh, yeah, maybe you see there uh, Tommy Girl. Um, it's a beautiful scent, very conducive to Janic feelings. Uh, Habit Rouge by Guerlain also. It's, you know, I associated with the third Jana and I think it, it is related. And uh, Nick Amarada actually described Hedonium Shockwave, which is uh, the second Kyorai perfume, as a mixture between the third jhana and cocaine. Now, he's very experienced with meditation and, and jhanas, and uh, I think that's true. I thought that was a correct description. And I think uh, using Fearless to reduce fear, to kind of like get into a pre-meditative mood, might be a very good application. But then using Hedonium Shockwave, as a spark for igniting the third jhana, maybe? I honestly thought it had like real effects. Like, so the choice of smell and perfume actually matters a lot, I think. And that was my experience. And definitely, definitely don't use noble fig. <laughs> it does not help. Um, okay, with that, I think like just to wrap up, um, big picture, 
you know, algorithmic reduction, uh, QRI paradigms, uh, very helpful. Like even before trying to get to an ontology, just describe like in what way the steps of the information processing um, uh, pipeline, how they interact. Robert Bea was excellent at essentially giving you like algorithmic reductions of how to achieve the Janus, extremely helpful. I would say the symmetry theory of valence absolutely holds up. It is absolutely the case that the, the third Jana fabric of experience is so much smoother and symmetrical and regular. And that's what seems to make it feel good. Like there's a very clean, very, very clean relationship there. Whereas the first Jana is like more coarse and more pinchy and irregular, somewhat irregular, even though it can be more, I don't know if more energized necessarily, probably starts more energized, but and I'm sure like the third Jana can become very energized. But the point is like that the, the smoothness and the valence, very, very, very tightly coupled. Uh, neural annealing as well, absolutely. I mean, like essentially paying attention to any two things at once increases the impedance matching between them, meaning that they are much more likely to couple with each other uh, in terms of the resonant modes. You, you pay attention to your left foot and your right foot. You notice the vibrations in both of them. And uh, if you keep your attention on both simultaneously and you keep it and you keep it, eventually you will notice how they synchronize. Very robust, very robust. Try it, try it, it works. And uh, and essentially I think like that's how you end up like in these attractors of complete coherence because you slowly build up to that synchrony, uh, which is a neural annealing concept. Uh, you know, logarithmic scales of pleasure and pain as well. Absolutely. The, the first Jana, as I experienced it, way stronger than than <laughs> i mean very strong right it's like like this is strong stuff and like it doesn't make sense if you have like a linear scale for pleasure and pain um attention and awareness definitely watch my video on attention and awareness attention as an oscillatory the oscillatory complement of the field of awareness that also absolutely holds up when you have like very concentrated attention the seven attention heads of the hydra of your you know, frontal lobes, when they are all energizing the same internal representation with the same rhythm, uh, they get essentially there's that they fall into a new attractor and they get um, synchronized. And um, and now there rather than being like kind of like seven patchworks of this desynchronized kind of like multi-threaded attention system, all of a sudden it's like there's this one bucket of attention and everything else that oscillates with it. I think that's that's the uh, essential ingredient of the jana. I mean, everything else is just like instructions for how not to get distracted and how to build energy towards a consonant structure that will catch your, trap your attention and form an oscillatory complement with everything else. So that still works. And then, you know, I would revise neural annealing to be the new QRI, oh, you know, QRI 3.0 paradigm, which would be neural field annealing where all of a sudden yeah we're talking about something something that is not just you know neurons but also actually the patchwork of local field potentials and how they're causally interlinked with neural coherence i think jana practice is a practice involving neural field annealing and the crazy thing is i think also like just plain neural annealing without field behavior also happens <laughs> 
but uh, that doesn't produce intense conscious effects and uh, definitely not as much like powerful valence effects. Um, if you're curious, yeah, I mean, essentially the way I'm thinking of like, what is your state of consciousness right now? I think of it in terms of wave field synthesis, where essentially each of your heads of attention is generating these oscillatory complements that together by superimposing those resonances, you create a field with holistic field behavior. And you know, you can, you can, there's a software for doing this with sound. For example, if you have a bunch of speakers in a room, you can create a standing wave pattern of sound where over here is very quiet. There's almost no, you can't hear anything over here is very loud, right? Like the, the, the patterns of superposition of, of the sounds create a pattern in 3d space. I think essentially the contents of your world simulation are essentially that. I mean, it's, it's a pattern of interference, non-linear interference um, that has been synthesized with these attention heads, energizing internal representations with their resonant modes, their emitting waves. Um, uh, so yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Okay, so uh, just getting to the end here, I think that um, a new way of thinking of your entire world simulation is kind of like with a computer metaphor. Again, like the most interesting aspects of consciousness, I think they're like not actually very computer-like. <laughs> the, 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 you know, holistic field behavior is kind of like an intrinsically, you know, field effect. Uh, but when it comes to modeling the information processing pipeline as a whole, almost kind of like a computer metaphor where, okay, the contents of what's called the sensory doors in, in Buddhism, like, you know, your, your sight, your, your touch, your audio, think of those as kind of a, the HTML of your experience. You know, your world simulation is a browser and that's kind of the HTML. The emotional tone, kind of like the limbic resonances, think of that as the CSS. It's essentially changing the style. It's a style sheet. <laughs> so like, the same sensor input, you could perceive it as like beautiful or ugly, depending on the CSS, right? Depending on the style sheet. Um, that is like a memory map it has to do with a hippocampus, essentially it takes a snapshot of the current emotional tone, uh, capturing the entire situation. And like, okay, like if you ever experience something close to it, it kind of like becomes a new attractor It's an energy minima, whatever has been experienced before becomes an energy minima of the world simulation. Then there's kind of like the, the JavaScript, uh, which is kind of the dynamic elements of your world simulation. And I would associate that with the muscle control, essentially the motor planning space. So the, you know, the HTML and the CSS are kind of like static, you know, decorated, but uh, the JavaScript makes it active and interactive. You know, you add movement um, behavior to it and responsiveness. I think that's, uh, you know, habitual responses are coded in the JavaScript slash the motor planning space, muscle control. And muscle control actually modulates as well the flow of attention, but in a slightly different way, I think like patterns of tension in the body essentially changes the effective index of refraction of the way the waves travel, which means that, yeah, very contracted states are actually changing the way the waves are traveling. You can trap waves and due to nonlinear resonance, make them essentially robust and <laughs> the truly blissful states actually generally either involve a very regular pattern of contraction, such as like an orgasm, 
or complete release with no contraction at all so that you get you know the unimpeded wave propagation throughout your world simulation which is naturally blissful and uh, finally yeah you have the um uh well you have the interceptive resonance box which would be part of the html and the css which is kind of like a soundboard for everything that is going on and it's actually kind of like a four-year transform of the elements of the world simulation which you can tune into and amplify and is going to amplify specific things within your world simulation which is the things that are contributing to that part of the spectrum and then you also have a hydra which is kind of like a seven-headed what would be like a seven-headed kind of structure <laughs> which is seven um attention centers which themselves can like actually synchronize with each other if and only if enough of the elements of the html and css are actually in a state of coherence i mean essentially the metaphor here is uh like if you have a bunch of pendulums clocks in a wall if the wall is very small you have only 10 of them let's say uh, they will naturally synchronize but you have a very long wall um, they will not synchronize you will have like maybe spontaneous synchrony of some clusters here of, of clocks but never the whole thing synchronizes and then there's like two phase transitions as you increase the number of connections between the clocks first you will have what, what i call competing clusters of coherence which is when over here every clock is actually synchronized with other clocks but not all of the clocks are synchronized together uh, so they're always kind of like competing for the membership of who who gets synchronized with whom and then if you add even more connections then you get to another phase transition where all of the clocks synchronize and then you get what i call global coherence i think the janus are a state of global coherence and essentially you need to go through first a competing cluster of coherence stage which is the development of pd there's also this concept of uh, nimitas and nimitas are essentially bundles of your world simulation that are trapping your attention and so as you focus on the pleasure in your body your body can become a nimita is a kind of attractor of attention but if it's not strong enough you will still have kind of like other heads of attention you know coming in and out they may be distracted and they will be looking at other things which is why sometimes you require a secondary nimitas where for example you think of like a smiling buddha <laughs> together with your body so that like the attention heads can actually shift from here to there and back and more so because this is a nonlinear optical computer the nimitas actually work as kind of mirrors or reflectors where the energy gets trapped and stays within a small set of competing clusters of coherence until there's enough coherence in you know the other component of the world simulation that they entrain the attention heads and now they stain the attractor from competing clusters of coherence into final global coherence and i think that the janas are essentially whenever you achieve that phase transition wow okay this is uh this is a lot uh i'm almost done uh just a couple additional like insights is that um essentially you can address specific regions of your energy body um whenever you find like an energy center it's essentially kind of like an what i would call like an an eigen mode of attention or a non-linear eigen mode um 
you know, like, like an ellipse, the two focal points are kind of like regions where if you uh, send a wave, it will bounce off of the edges and converge on the other focal point. And then from it, it will bounce off the edges and, and converge on the other focal point, right? So there's like some spots in your energy body, which is the sort of thing that sacred geometry, sacred geometry meditation does, is focusing on those. If you use them as your centers of attention, literally there's going to be waves that bounce off the edges of your world simulation and converge somewhere and then bounce again and get there. And so they're special. They're actually special points. Um, but with enough training and practice, you can bootstrap arbitrary secondary energy spots that essentially piggyback on kind of like the first order eigenmodes. And, and I think essentially, I mean, this is kind of like a, a neural network, of, but of combining these nonlinear resonant modes. And I think, well, this is like how to use holistic field behavior to encode arbitrary patterns. And it's not exactly neural networks because yeah, those are discrete. We're talking about like how to stack resonant modes of the field and well, a whole video and a whole article is going to be made about that. Uh, yeah, the other very important thing was uh, the difference between periphery and the core. That something like DMT can probably make, well, in general would make the other component of your world simulation synchronize and enter into competing clusters of coherence. I mean, DMT feels very other. It's almost kind of like the predictive coding hierarchy of the other component of your world simulation. Essentially, you know, low level prediction errors bubble up all the way up to like high level percepts that feels like input from another dimension, you know, that you're learning about. So that would be kind of like entrainment that goes from that layer of the world simulation into the core. And it may not synchronize the core. Oftentimes on DMT, that just doesn't happen. Sometimes it does, and that would be kind of a JANIC DMT subtype. Whereas 5-MeO DMT, in retrospect, directly and from the very beginning, even at small doses, is targeting the core, is targeting the attention heads and the limbic wave modulator, and essentially interlocking them and making them vibrate. And it's not that the world simulation is entraining you, is more that you get entrained with yourself and you're projecting that entrainment to the rest of your world simulation. And that's why, I mean, people on 5MEO DMT say it felt like not only that I was God, but that God was coming through me, right? It's not like God is not being bootstrapped out of the periphery. Rather, the very center is a thing that is being vibrated from the very beginning, which I think is why 5MEO DMT is so janic in quality. Um, and uh, yeah, finally, just like final, final reflection here is <laughs> the idea that, yeah, if you do take very seriously the brain as a nonlinear optical computer, then um, there's this question of like, well, we're kind of light trapped, you know, and, and maybe the visual cortex actually works like a, a LCD, a liquid, liquid crystal display that essentially is aligning crystals like microtubules in such a way that electromagnetic waves can bounce off of, of them as if they were like walls. Uh, I was going to say like, 
I think on the third or fourth day of the retreat, I had like a intense equanimity experience. In one, I was listening to um, a Michael Taft meditation. So much energy of a very restless kind. And I remember like almost kind of like a micro crystalline structure was being pushed from uh, the sides of my head inwards. And these like branching structure of energy pathways became realized. And that felt like, okay, now that is capable of dissipating stress in a very efficient way. It's kind of like a stress dissipator. I talked about this on a neural annealing, uh, sorry, on um, Buddhist annealing as equanimity as increasing the stress dissipation capacity of the nervous system. Yeah, I experienced that quite a bit on this retreat, especially at the beginning. Uh, but that actually very much felt like taking something that would be described as a crypto crystalline structure that is like, yes, it is made of crystals, but they're very tiny into something that is macro crystalline. So a lot of gunk, kind of like a lot of the stress of life generates a lot of these like tiny crystals that are not aligned with each other. And then these processes that like create these branching structures, realign them. <laughs> and then like the energy can dissipate very, very efficiently. The stress can dissipate very efficiently. That might be explained in terms of like changes to the liquid crystal display <laughs> of the sense doors. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and along these lines, well, you know, EEG and local field potential seems to be, you know, in the roughly like one to a hundred hertz. Now, if light is going at a hundred hertz, right, that means that it has an effective wavelength of something much, 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 much larger, right? Like we're talking like kilometers, kilometers, right? Like essentially, you know, like <laughs> there's a correspondence between the, you know, the hertz of the light and the wavelength, right? So if the light literally is a hundred hertz, right? The wavelength is very large, very, very large. So, um, essentially, if we are the light trapped, you know, in these kind of like kaleidoscopic mirror world, um, and it's interfering with itself in pleasant and unpleasant ways, and the way in which the sense of distance in the world simulation is implemented via changes in the index of refraction of electromagnetic waves, essentially, I think what is going on is that... <laughs> effectively from the point of view of light the world simulation is way larger actually right so we are kind of beings of light that are like kilometers you know tens of kilometers or more wide like what is it like to be you is what it is like to be a pattern of interference of light that is many kilometers wide but that is being essentially rendered into something that is effectively much, 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 much smaller physically because um, these, uh, the way in which the local field potentials are being generated is essentially through neural coherence, which happens at a much, 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 much tinier physical scale, but still generating, you know, something about 100 hertz or something like that, 30 hertz. So, oh, and more so, uh, it's the effective geometry would essentially be something like um, a hyperbolic geometry. 
so yeah, I mean, maybe what it's like to be in the sun or something would be like a cell in the sun. Like maybe actually those experiences are like as large in terms of like the sense of distance, relative distance as what it is like to be you, even though you're, you know, compressed in a tiny brain, <laughs> relatively speaking, because it's emulating the behavior of light that is actually much, much, much bigger. Okay, hopefully that made some sense. It's okay if it made no sense. I don't put much stock in that. It's just a trippy, interesting idea I had <laughs> during the retreat. Um, finally, 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 I'll talk about dependent arising, which uh, Robert Bea explained. This is a very, very, very subtle, very subtle teaching. Very, very difficult and not even like most advanced meditators get it. I thought, given his description, that dependent arising actually was kind of the other side of the coin of the binding problem or the boundary problem. And indeed, very few people, I think, <laughs> really get how profound the binding problem is. Which is, And it's absolutely the same language as in Buddhism. Nothing is a thing in and of itself. Everything is only to the extent that it is related to other things. But once you understand the binding problem, you realize this is something that happens within the world simulation. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, um, pain isn't real. It just means that pain as a stimuli, you know, as a low level quilia value, acquires its valence in relation to the structure of the whole world simulation. Um, now, if it is very irregular, the only way in which it will actually feel good is if it somehow tessellates across the entire world simulation or there's like a way in which the tension and shear that the pain is generating dissipates properly across the world simulation. Um, so actually, like it's not that any low-level sensation can mean anything. Essentially, they do constrain the state space. They do constrain, they are constraining, but there's oftentimes many more degrees of freedom such that like, yeah, even a very intensely painful sensation in the proper wrapping can actually end up being something that intrinsically is felt at, or it's felt as if it intrinsically had positive valence. But <laughs> in general, uh, more symmetrical, consonant, harmonious, low level percepts will be compatible with a much broader range of possible experiences to end up creating something that is net positive valence. I hope that makes some sense. It's kind of like um, a particular note doesn't mean anything in terms of harmony unless it happens within a scale, a musical scale, right? So the harmony of a note is codependent. It co-arises with its position within a scale, right? Without the scale, it it's, doesn't mean anything, neither consonant nor dissonant. But there are pair, or you know, there are like triads or pairs of notes that for them to be consonant, the scale has to be very specifically engineered. Whereas there are other pairs of notes, let's say one note and its octave, that for a lot of scales, those two together will be consonant, right? So yes, codependent arising does mean that, you know, the way of seeing something, the way in which uh, you're modulating the, the wave of form of the resonant pattern directed by the attention head, the way that is happening will modify the valence. Absolutely. But 
um, it will still constrain the state space of positive, posi possible positive valence interpretations. So much more could be explained here, but um, I will I will I will say that yeah, the the codependent arising uh, is totally compatible with a zero ontology, and I, and I think the ninth jhana or the unfabricated state, um, essentially is kind of like the collapsing of information content, where you get like zero information content slash the superposition of all possibilities. And essentially any non-zero configuration involves the breaking of symmetry so that anything that you experience always requires a background that keeps track essentially of the symmetries that were broken for you to experience it. Meaning that, yeah, you cannot experience you know, the color red intrinsically without a wrapper that, you know, um, similar to you cannot have an electron without a, a positron, you know, that, well, even though in the universe there's more matter than antimatter, that's still kind of a mystery, but presumably, definitely in the quantum vacuum, but, you know, presumably somehow <laughs> um, the total matter in the universe actually does cancel out um, to be exactly zero. Right, uh, the same as energy, momentum, um, etc., charge. Um, yeah, there's as many as many like electrons as there, are, well, as, as much like negative charge as, as there is positive charge, they cancel out, right? Uh, and a photon can split into a positron and an an electron. Um, I think in that sense, the unfabricated state would be something like maybe just a photon, or not even that, just a, a plane field. And then a photon might be a certain kind of symmetry breaking and then further symmetry breaks into uh, an electron and an anti-electron further symmetry breaks into more structure and then the actual experience that you have kind of like <laughs> is the rubik's cube of, of reality but you know scrambled in a particular way and that is codependent arising slash maybe <laughs> the other side of the coin of the binding problem well, okay, with that, I think this has been the longest video so far. Um, again, uh, apologies if I look like in a slightly strange mood. I'm having a great, great time, but uh, I just wanted to like explain this as, as, uh, as soon as possible after the retreat. So infinite bliss. I, I hope I hope you, you get to experience these things. I will continue practicing and we'll see how it goes. So infinite bliss, everybody. Take care. <laughs> Until next time. Ciao.